Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. In our last general episode, we completed our investigation of the preamble of the Constitution. This episode, we begin our review of Article 1 of the Constitution. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. And Sheila Guerin, thank you so much for your support. Mike Gerard will get us started. As we have noted before, the Constitution has the preamble, seven articles, and 27 amendments. The first three articles create the branches of government. The legislative branch is addressed in Article 1. The executive branch is addressed in Article 2. And the judicial branch is addressed in Article 3. The Constitutional Convention placed the legislative branch first because it was universally understood to be the most important. It creates the laws that the executive executes and the judiciary interprets. Article 1 has 10 sections. Section 1 provides as follows. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. The idea that there would be a separate legislative branch was a given. The United Kingdom had a parliament which was considered the legislative branch. The colonies had legislative assemblies which were vested with legislative power. French political philosopher Charles Louis de Seconda, the Baron de Montesquieu, or better known simply as Montesquieu, was well known by the founding fathers, and in his monumentally influential The Spirit of the Laws, he posited that the legislative power should be placed in its own branch of government. In fact, maintaining a separation of powers between the legislative, executive, and judicial powers was vitally important. James Madison called the separation of powers a first principle of free government and the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be grounded the very definition of tyranny. This idea of the separation of powers was widely shared by the Founding Fathers. Montesquieu explained the simple but powerful theory. When the legislative and the executive powers are united in the same person or in the same body of magistrates, there can be no liberty, because apprehensions may arise lest the same monarch or senate should enact tyrannical laws to execute them in a tyrannical manner. Similarly, there is no liberty if the judiciary power be not separated from the legislative and executive. Were it joined with the legislative, the life on liberty of the subject would be exposed to arbitrary control, for the judge would be then the legislature. Were it joined to the executive power, the judge might behave with violence and oppression. Stated more simply, Madison and the other Founding Fathers believed that to preserve liberty, the three branches of power must be separate and distinct. If one branch dominated, it would easily become tyrannical. This idea of the separation of powers was rather novel in world history. Great Britain was the leading government to implement this theory, but there the powers were much less distinct than Madison or Montesquieu proposed. 
The ultimate court, for example, was the House of Lords, which was part of the Parliament in the legislative branch. The king had legislative prerogatives, including entirely closing down the Parliament. Even in America, the separation of powers was often ignored. Often the people served in the legislature and the executive branch, or as judges. The Articles of Confederation completely abandoned any pretense of a separation of powers. Congress possessed all authority. There was no executive or judicial branches. This was because the Articles of Confederation was a confederation of sovereign states. The Constitution, as we have learned, was based on a different foundation, the people. And with that new foundation, the ability to implement a true separation of powers finally existed, likely for the first time in world history. An independent legislative branch was the first step in implementing a true separation of powers. That there would be a Congress that would hold that legislative power was never in doubt. Throughout the Revolution, the American colonies had united in the First Continental Congress and then the Second Continental Congress. In 1781, the Articles of Confederation became effective, and the government itself was referred to as the United States in Congress assembled. As for the composition of the Congress, well, that was a different matter altogether. That the legislative power in Congress would be divided into two houses was proposed nearly out of the box at the Constitutional Convention. On May 29, 1787, Virginia delegate Edmund Randolph proposed 15 resolutions, what history has termed the Randolph Plan or the Virginia Plan. Now, James Madison actually wrote most of the Randolph Plan, but Madison was the masterful tactician, and he knew having Randolph present the plan would give it the esteem and respect necessary to set the stage for its potential success. That is right, Mike Gerard. Edmund Randolph was a leading politician not only in Virginia, but in America. Born on August 10, 1753, he was the sire of a very influential family. When the American Revolution broke out, his father remained loyal to the empire and returned to England with his family, including Edmund. After arriving in Great Britain, Edmund turned right around, came back to America, and joined the Continental Army. He became an aide-de-camp to George Washington. Soon he was elected to the Virginia Legislative Assembly, then mayor of Williamsburg, and Attorney General for Virginia. He then served in the Continental Congress from 1779 through 1782. In 1786, he was elected governor of Virginia and attended the Annapolis Convention. At the ripe old age of 34, he attended the Constitutional Convention as a representative of Virginia. He played a very influential part of the convention through his plan and advocacy of it. But in the end, he decided not to sign the Constitution. In fact, he was but one of three delegates who attended the entire convention but refused to sign the Constitution. He was concerned that the federal judiciary would dominate state courts, the Senate was too powerful, and Congress's authority was too strong. He also wanted a second convention to convene after the Constitution was circulated among the states. But at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, he changed his mind and supported the Constitution. 
This drove mad some delegates who opposed the Constitution, like Patrick Henry. Randolph became the first attorney general under the new federal Constitution and was a member of President George Washington's cabinet. When Thomas Jefferson resigned as Secretary of State, he took Jefferson's position. Soon, however, disaster struck. Washington had been given French correspondence captured by the English. The British turned over the French correspondence to the Washington administration, and that captured correspondence suggested that American Secretary of State Randolph had disclosed confidential internal discussions among the American cabinet to France, and worst, that he disparaged the United States. When Washington saw the letter, he kept it to himself until a cabinet meeting. When confronted by Washington in front of the cabinet, Randolph was speechless and resigned immediately. He later tried to vindicate his position, and the author of the intercepted letters later retracted its contents. Of course, this was very little, way too late. After resigning from the cabinet, Randolph returned to practicing law and, in fact, successfully defended Aaron Burr at his trial for treason in 1807. He passed away on September 12th, the second day of Patriot Week in 1813. Mike Gerard, please carry on. Thank you, bombastic Brent Bassett, for that detour on Edmund Randolph's most remarkable life. Back on May 29, 1787, the third of the 15 Randolph resolutions proposed that the national legislature be composed of two branches. The first branch of the national legislature was to be elected by the people of the states, and the second to be elected by the first branch. For clarity's sake, we will usually refer to these branches as houses. The Randolph Plan did not name the houses, but the first would eventually become the House of Representatives, and the second, the Senate. The third resolution was approved 7-1 to 1 on May 31, 1787. In fact, it was agreed to without debate. Pennsylvania voted against it because it had a one-house legislature, which Benjamin Franklin favored. Pennsylvania was the only state in the Union with a single-house legislature. With the approval of this part of the Randolph Plan, the convention never looked back. There would be a Congress composed of two houses. The first paragraph of Section 2 of Article 1 provides the same key details regarding the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states, and the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation provided that each state would elect between two and seven members, and that they would be appointed annually as the legislature of each state directed. The Randolph Plan simply provided that the people of each state should elect the members of the House of Representatives. There was nothing about the qualification of the voters. The House of Representatives in the Constitution is completely different from the Articles of Confederation and adds who is entitled to vote to Randolph's plan. The first paragraph of Section 2 of Article 1 provides that the members of the House of Representatives be elected by the voters of each state. That the House of Representatives should even be elected by the people engendered significant debate. 
Although this was the practice of the House of Commons, members of Congress had always been selected by the state legislatures, not by the people. Moreover, England was pretty much alone in allowing the people to vote at all for their national legislature. The people, after all, were rabble, uninformed, and corruptible. In that vein, on May 31st, Roger Sherman argued that the state legislature should elect the members to the House of Representatives because the people were ill-informed and likely to be misled. Elbridge Gerry supported Sherman and announced, The evils we experience flow from the excess of democracy. The people do not want virtue, but are the dupes of pretended patriots. In Massachusetts, it has been fully confirmed by experience that they are daily misled into the most baneful measures and opinions of the false reports circulated by designing men which no one on the spot can refute. Gary was arguing that the whole reason a constitutional convention was necessary was because of the crisis caused by the states. They had run amok. And they ran amok because the people directly elected them. Despite these arguments, the majority of delegates countered that empowering the people was absolutely essential to freedom. George Mason bellowed, An election of the larger branch by the people is essential. It has to be the grand depository of the democratic principle of a government. It was, so to speak, to be our House of Commons. It ought to know and sympathize with every part of the community, and ought, therefore, to be taken not only from the different parts of the whole republic, but also from different districts of the larger members of it, which had in several instances, particularly in Virginia, different interests and views arising from difference of produce, our habits, and so forth. Admittedly, we have been too democratic, but I am afraid that we should incautiously run into the opposite extreme. Mason, in other words, argued that only by allowing the people to directly elect their representatives could the needs and the views of the people, diverse as they are, find a voice in the legislative branch. It was to be a republic, after all, not a confederation of states. James Wilson added that a direct vote of the people was essential to give the federal government the broadest base of support possible, and that could only happen if the people held the franchise. No government could long subsist without the confidence of the people. In a Republican government, this confidence was peculiarly essential. Madison agreed with Wilson's position, explaining that the direct election of at least one branch of government was essential to a free government, and that a direct election was the only solid foundation for the government. Wilson also noted that the idea of having the state legislatures choose the representatives in Congress would give the states too much weight in the federal government and would cause otherwise avoidable messy entanglements between the states and the House of Representatives. The Randolph plan of having the people directly elect the House of Representatives was approved by the Constitutional Convention on May 30th by a vote of 6-2. to two. On June 6th, a motion was made to revisit this vote and was debated. James Wilson rose again and elaborated on why direct election was so vital. It was a matter of fulfilling the social compact and the consent of the governed. I wish for vigor in the government, but 
I wish that vigorous authority to flow immediately from the legitimate source of all authority. The government ought to possess not only, first, the force, but second, the mind or the sense of the people at large. The legislature ought to be the most exact transcript of the whole society. Representation is made necessary only because it is impossible for the people to act collectively. In other words, to be truly representative, the House of Representatives needs to be elected directly by the people. Roger Sherman countered that because the duties of the federal government were so limited that the states should be empowered to elect the national legislature to ensure harmony between the national and state governments. Mason responded that Sherman's view correctly reflected the old view of a confederation as embodied in the Articles of Confederation, but now that the Congress would have authority to legislate directly on the people themselves, the members of the House of Representatives need to be elected directly. Under the existing Confederacy, Congress represent the states and not the people of the states. Their acts operate on the states, not the individuals. The case will be changed in the new plan of government. The people will be represented. They ought, therefore, to choose the representatives. The requisites in actual representation are that the representatives should sympathize with their constituents, should think as they think and feel as they feel, and that for these purposes they should be residents among them. Although there was truth to the charges that the people could be misled, and therefore democratic elections could undermine unalienable rights, perfection was impossible, and the alternatives were far worse. Much had been alleged against democratic elections. I admit that much might be said, but it was to be considered that no government was free from imperfections and evils, and that the improper elections in many instances were inseparable from Republican governments. But compare these with the advantage of this form in favor of the rights of the people, in favor of human nature. I am persuaded that there was a better chance for proper elections by the people if divided into large districts than by the state's legislatures. Mason and Madison also observed that the state legislatures had caused many of the conditions that necessitated calling a constitutional convention in the first place. Inflationary paper money and trade wars were just two examples. Why would they be expected to choose wiser representatives to the House of Representatives? Several delegates echoed the prior debate that a direct election was essential to a free government. The resolution to maintain direct elections in the House of Representatives was affirmed by a vote of 8 to 3. Another issue to be addressed was the term of office. Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation provided that the delegates to Congress would serve one-year terms. In the Constitutional Convention, Randolph's original resolution literally left blank the term of office. At a later point, a proposal had been made that members of the House of Representatives should serve for three-year terms, and Edmund Randolph moved on June 21, 1787, that it be changed to a two-year term. Randolph argued that all of the states, except South Carolina, had annual elections for their House of Representatives, but that would be impractical and very inconvenient to keep annual elections 
considering how large the United States was. This proposal was opposed by John Dickinson of Pennsylvania because he thought even two-year terms were too short in light of the extent of the country. He also suggested that one-third of the House of Representatives should be up for election every year. In other words, there would be three-year terms, but only one-third of the House could be replaced at any given time. Oliver Ellsworth was a Connecticut delegate who played a key role in some of the Constitution's compromises, but who would leave the convention before signing it because of pressing business interests. He countered Dickinson. He argued that two-year terms were superior versus three, and, in fact, would even prefer one-year terms over two years because the people were fond of frequent elections. He moved that three years be changed to one year. James Wilson spoke in favor of a one-year term. He was unpersuaded that it would be a burden on the states since they had annual elections for their own legislatures anyway, and surely Congress would meet less than half of the year. Little did he know that Congress would be an all-year affair. Madison explained that the burden of annual elections was not on the voters, but on the representatives, some of whom might have to travel 800 miles. They would have to travel back and forth for campaigns and elections, and such a travel schedule would detract from their duties. Roger Sherman preferred annual elections, but thought two-year terms would be practicable. He was very concerned that longer terms would mean that the representatives would lose touch with their home constituents and instead become enchanted with the habits of the capital city. Well, today, many argue that the inside-the-beltway mentality has had just this effect. George Mason noted that if there were annual elections, that would advantage the representatives of the states closest to the seat of government. So a two-year term would mitigate against that issue. Hamilton chimed in that a three-year term would actually likely increase the engagement of the representatives. Ultimately, the convention unanimously determined to proceed with two-year terms. The next question was, who could serve in the House of Representatives? The convention tackled this question beginning on August 7, 1787. Ellsworth argued that the state should set who is eligible to vote for the House of Representatives. Whoever could vote for the most numerous branch of the state legislature, that is the state House of Representatives, would also be eligible to vote for the House of Representatives in Congress. As another example, let's say at some point the state of New York allowed 18-year-old men of any race to vote for the New York House of Representatives while the Senate required a voter to be an 18-year-old man who owned real estate. Also, suppose that the New York House had 100 members and the New York Senate only had 50 members. Then, the rule that applied to the New York State House of Representatives would be the rule that would apply in New York for members of Congress. In other words, 18-year-old men regardless of whether they owned property, could vote for the United States House of Representatives. On the other hand, if at some point Maryland's House of Representatives required a voter to be 21 years old of any race and gender, then that would apply to congressmen elected in Maryland. This allows each state to set the standard for who represents it in Congress. 
That's right, bombastic Brent Bassett. Ellsworth remarked that the states are the best judges of the circumstances and temper of their own people. Mason agreed and noted that if the Constitution set a higher bar to vote for the National House of Representatives than the states, then the local voters would be disenfranchised. South Carolina's Pierce Butler explained that the people were very jealous of their right to vote and that taking that right away had actually provoked a revolution in Holland. John Dickinson countered that only property owners should have the right to vote. This would best protect unalienable rights. Since the country was composed mostly of landowners, it would not be a dangerous situation. Governor Morris echoed Dickinson and even argued that men without property would sell their votes to the rich. George Mason could not let this affront stand. He immediately stood up and railed against these arguments. We all feel too strongly the remains of ancient prejudices and view things too much through a British media. A freehold, that is, property ownership, is the qualification in England, and hence, it is imagined to be the only proper one. The true idea was that every man, having evidence of attachment to and permanent common interest with the society, ought to share in all its rights and privileges. Was this qualification restrained to freeholders, that is, landowners? Does no other kind of property but land evident a common interest in the proprietor? Does nothing besides property mark a permanent attachment? Ought the merchant, the moneyed man, the parent of a number of children whose fortunes are to be pursued in his own country to be viewed as suspicious, as captors, and unworthy to be trusted with the common rights of their fellow citizens? Madison reflected that the question depended on the circumstances, and he feared for the future. In future times, a great majority of the people will not only be without land, but any other sort of property. These will either combine under the influence of their common situation, in which case the rights of property and the public liberty will not be secure in their hands, or, what is more probable, that they will become the tools of opulence and ambition, in which case there will be equal danger on the other side. In other words, voters who did not own their own land would be corrupted, bought off, or use their power to subvert the unalienable rights of their fellow citizens. Madison's pessimistic view would not go unchallenged. Madison's own notes reflect that no less an authority than Benjamin Franklin immediately arose to dismantle Madison's argument. It is of great consequence that we should not depress the virtue and public spirit of the common people, of which they displayed a great deal during the war and which contributed principally to the favorable issue of it. For example, the honorable refusal of the American seamen who were carried in great numbers into British prisons during the war to redeem themselves from misery or to seek their fortunes by entering on board the ships of the enemies to their country. Contrast that patriotism with a contemporary instance in which the British seamen made prisoners by the Americans steadily entered on the ships of the latter, and being promised a share of the prizes that might be made of their own country. 
this proceeded from the different manner in which the common people were treated in America and Great Britain. I do not think that the elected had any right, in any case, to narrow the privileges of the electors. I quote as arbitrary the British statute setting forth the danger of tumultuous meetings and under the pretext narrowing the right of suffrage to persons having freeholds of a certain value, observing that this statute was soon followed by another under the succeeding Parliament, subjecting the people who had no votes to peculiar labors and hardships. Such a restriction would give great uneasiness in the populous states. The sons of a substantial farmer, not being themselves freeholders, would not be pleased at being disenfranchised, and there are a great many persons of that description. Maryland's John Francis Mercer responded to Franklin by condemning the idea of allowing the people to directly vote for the members of the House of Representatives. In fact, he was so passionate about this opposition and other issues that he left the convention in August and opposed the Constitution's ratification in Maryland. After Mercer's comments, South Carolina's John Rutledge argued that restricting the franchise to landowners was very ill-advised and would create a division among the people and make enemies of all those who were excluded from the vote. After a bit more debate, on August 8, 1787, the convention refused to limit voters in the House of Representatives to landowners. This was a remarkable development on the world stage. Randolph's fourth resolution provided that congressmen should be ineligible to hold any state or federal offices while in Congress and for an undetermined time after they left office, that they should be subject to recall, and that they should be barred from running for office for an indeterminate time after their terms expired. Recall that under Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation, all delegates to Congress were subject to a recall. States had the authority to replace the representatives in Congress at will. But of course, that was based on the foundation that the Articles of Confederation were just that, a confederation of states, and it made sense that the states had the authority to recall their congressmen. But in the House of Representatives, under the new Constitution, the people are sovereign, and giving state governments the authority to recall the representatives of the people would violate this fundamental principle. It would destroy representation, the social compact, and the consent of the governed. The idea of recall by state legislatures in the Constitution was stillborn. Randolph also proposed term limits. That is, that congressmen would be barred after serving some term of years from running again. This also seemed to be a carryover from the Articles of Confederation. Article 5 of the Articles provide that delegates could only serve three years in any six-year period. This term limitation, or mandatory rotation in office, was discarded in the Constitution. Some delegates argued that these provisions were unnecessary and undermined the will of the people. Others, that they were essential to preventing corruption. In the end, the convention determined to entrust the people themselves with the decision on whether to re-elect any given member of the House of Representatives and any attempt to impose term limits or rotation in office was dropped. 
The convention also barred the old English practice of allowing legislators to hold multiple offices in the other branches of government in Great Britain. To curry favor and reward those allied with the king, offices were doled out by the king and his administrators to, you know, buy off the parliament. This corrupting influence was purged in America, and the Constitution specifically bars members of the House of Representatives from holding other state or federal offices. This also strongly reinforces the separation of powers. Members of the House of Representatives are isolated from corruption by the executive. We will have to stop it here and continue the House of Representatives when we return next time. Some key takeaways from this episode. The legislative power of the federal government is vested in the Congress. Congress is composed of two houses, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Members of the House of Representatives are elected directly by the people of the states using the qualifications applicable to each particular state's House of Representatives. Members of the House of Representatives in Congress hold office for two years, cannot be recalled, have no term limits, and are barred from holding other state or federal offices. Please join us next time when we continue our review of Article 1 and the Congress, including the infamous Three-Fifths Clause. Now I have a bit of a public service announcement. We have the best audience in the podcast world, and we appreciate your loyalty and dedication to the podcast. Unfortunately, the episodes for the next few months will likely be a bit shorter and perhaps a bit less regular than in the last couple of years. This happens to be an extraordinarily busy time for me. I'm up for election for the Michigan Supreme Court and doing some strategic planning and additional content creation for the Patriot Week Foundation, so my time is very squeezed right now. And since I'm the researcher and writer, well, please bear with us. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two fabulous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skonechny, who is a sound designer and Patriot Week's video content producer, and the multi-talented, bombastic Brent Bassett. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about America's founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags from our history, along with all the other fantastic resources we have to offer. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org.
Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.